Hello, Metro Augusta. This is Janice Allen Jackson, welcoming you to the February 2nd edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. Our show is brought to you by Janice Allen Jackson and Associates. You can learn more about the firm and the services that we provide, as well as catch any episodes of Local Matters that you missed by going to JaniceAllenJackson.Weebly.com. There is a Local Matters tab, and there you can find every single episode. Uh, you can also click on those and share those with others who may benefit from hearing the information that we shared. As always, I thank you for being a part of the Local Matters family. And as I made reference to last week, election season is upon us. And this is a huge year for us here in the state of Georgia. Uh, the voter registration deadline, April 25th. The primary elections are March 20, or excuse me, May 24th. And there are a number of elections there that can make a significant difference in your quality of life. Uh, candidates will begin qualifying in mid-March. And from there, we're off to the races. I'm looking forward to bringing you a good deal of coverage, bringing in as many candidates as I can so that you really know who you have to choose from and who is in the best position to represent your interest. Here on Local Matters today, we have a guest from the faculty of Augusta University, and she is Dr. Mary Kate Lazat. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, as you know, one of the roles of Local Matters is to help our listeners get prepared for the upcoming elections. We know that here in Georgia, this is a huge election year for us mm -hmm. uh, because we have a number of local races, commission seats, mayor, school board, uh, judicial races, at state level, we've got a gubernatorial race, House of Representatives, and of course, we've got uh, at least one U.S. Senate race on the ballot. Um, mm -hmm. So we've got an awful lot going on here in Georgia election-wise, and I am so pleased that you are able to join me uh, to talk about some of the issues related to our upcoming elections. But before you get started with that, can you please explain a little bit about your career? How is it that you got from wherever you started to Augusta University's faculty? Well, thank you for having me. Um, so I often tell people this story. Uh, so I was really interested in politics from a very young age. Uh, I remember being particularly interested in the 1992 presidential election because my parents were gonna vote for different candidates and I that blew my mind. I could not wrap my mind around the fact that they disagreed and I got really interested in it. Uh, and I remember like watching parts of the debates and news coverage and everything. And at that time I was not even in junior high yet. So I was pretty young 
so I guess it was just sort of something that um, I was socialized into because my parents are very interested in politics. Uh, but anyways, so I decided to be a political science major in undergrad. Uh, the plan originally was to become a lawyer, uh, but I interned at a law office and it wasn't for me. So I decided to get a PhD uh, and, you know, that's been a great thing for me. Uh, I really enjoy teaching at the college level and I also really enjoy doing research. Uh, so I grew up actually in Massachusetts. I went to undergrad at Providence College in Rhode Island. And my first job out of graduate school, uh, I went to Stony Brook University on Long Island for grad school was in Birmingham, Alabama at Birmingham Southern College. And I really liked living in the Southeast. I loved it. Uh, I really liked the weather, I really like uh, the people, the food, all of those different things. And so when that position was no longer a good fit for me, uh, I ended up applying in lots of different places, but I applied a lot to jobs that were in the Southeast. And thankfully I found a really great fit in Augusta University and they saw it too. And I ended up uh, moving here uh, in 2016, so. Okay, now let's go back, 1992, that was Bill Clinton versus George Bush? Yep, George H.W. Bush. Okay. Uh, and um, there was a third party candidate as well, Ross Perot. And uh, Ross Perot, as a child, he was a cartoon character. You know, <laughs> if you remember, if you're old enough to remember the SNL skits of him, you know, that were this exaggerated version, they weren't that, that exaggerated. Uh, and I think. Yeah, there was just a lot of interesting things as a kid to to pay attention to that particular race. Um, and the and like I said, the fact that my parents were going to vote for different people just fascinated me. Okay. And tell me, what is the area of specialty uh, at Augusta University? What courses are you teaching? So my area of specialty is American government and politics. In particular, I look at uh, American political behavior and public opinion uh, with a focus on gender. So I mostly look at gender differences in American public opinion and political behavior. So the gender gap in vote choice, gender gaps in public opinion. Uh, I'm sure your listeners have heard of the gender gap in vote choice before. Uh, I teach a lot of different classes. Um, I teach in the Masters of Public Administration program. Um, I teach a stats class and a policy analysis class. And then for undergrad, I teach intro to American government and politics, campaigns and elections. Uh, I taught a race and politics course last year that was new and very popular among the students. Uh, I've taught a women in politics class. Um, so lots of different things within that area. But I've also studied women uh, running for elective office and how voters perceive women running for elective office. So I've dabbled in that a little bit as well in terms of my research, but in terms of the course that I've taught, I'm very up to date on that literature. Okay. So as you talk about the gender gaps in public opinion, uh, which one of your parents picked the successful presidential candidate? My mother did. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, my mother did. Which um, is the perfect, perfect segue into yes. our topic today. <laughs> we want to talk some today about women in politics, women running for office, attitudes about women running for office. Um, we had a situation here locally where uh, we had only had a few women, I think it's still only a handful of women have served on the Augusta Commission. School board has had a, a few more women, I believe, um, but still not an overwhelming number. Uh, and as you look at elected bodies throughout the country, women are typically underrepresented. So are there any grand conclusions that you've arrived to as to what leads to that underrepresentation? It's a lot of different things, to be honest. Uh, you know, one of them is what's often referred to as the ambition gap or the confidence gap more broadly, which is that women generally, uh, and when thinking about running for office in particular, express and claim to feel less confident about their abilities. And so less, you know, confident in their ability to win, uh, we see this in lots of different ways. And, you know, the other side of that is that men tend to express more confidence in their abilities than maybe they should be. So they seem overconfident. Uh, and so I think that that's a huge reason why we see fewer women running for office. But there's lots of other reasons, including, you know, women are still more likely to be the primary caregiver of children. And so when they enter into politics, that becomes more of an issue for them if they have small children uh, than it does for men because they're the primary caregiver and also because of the way that the media uh, deals with that. Uh, there's, there's definitely lots of different reasons. One of them being the misperception that women running for office don't have the same chances of winning as men. And in fact, the research shows that they do have the same chances of winning. But what you have to do in order to understand that is look at open seats because incumbents have an advantage. They often get reelected if they've held the office before. And so you have to look at seats where there is no incumbent. And that's where you see that women have the same chances of fundraising and of winning compared to men. But a lot of women who are qualified to run for office don't realize that. They think that, you know, they're not going to be able to do it, but that's just simply not true. You know, you, you hit on a really key point there about seats that, that don't have incumbents, because this reminds me of my work on a local government level and trying to diversify the historic pal paramilitary uh, departments like fire, like police. Um, in the fire service, it is a very slow process to diversify because people stay there for longer. I mean, they will, I got a job on the fire department and they're planning to stay for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it's a thing that runs in their families and, you know, just, you know, me and my uncle or my dad, we're all here and we're all going to be here for 30 years. So it's, you don't have as many openings and likewise with incumbents, it's hard to beat an incumbent. It is, it is. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes people see that and they think that we should have term limits because of that. 
but actually the political science research argues against term limits, which is surprising, I think, to a lot of individuals who think that that would solve some of the problems that we have uh, in our political system. But actually term limits uh, end up not being a great idea. Uh, but yes, it you know if an incumbent is deciding to stay for a very long time, uh, it can be very difficult to get that sort of representation that you're talking about to see more diversity and because that incumbent is you know occupying that seat and just simply because of name recognition is going to get reelected much easier than a challenger with very little name recognition can get elected. Okay. And why is the term limits not a good uh, remedy for that? Sure. So uh, term limits actually, well, women and people of color would get term limited out as well, right? So they would, um, you know, have to leave whatever legislative body um, or office that they're in. It can actually promote reliance on special interest groups and lobbyists because individuals who are in the office for a very short period of time um, are not as likely to be working towards seniority and peer relationships because they're only going to be there for a short period of time and so you end up seeing them create stronger relationships with lobbyists and special interests. And so this idea of, you know, drain the swamp, it actually makes the swamp worse. Um, or at least that's, you know, that's the general political science finding. Um, and they look at states that have done it, that have term limited their state legislatures, and they find that it can create a lot of problems. And that's just one of the major ones. Wow. Okay. It's also um, um, unconstitutional. The Supreme Court has said that you cannot term limit congressional seats. So uh, that's another reason why we don't have term limits is because, okay. you know, the Supreme Court could always overturn that in the future, but currently they have said that it's unconstitutional. Okay. Um, as we speak about uh, the presence of women, is there any data that shows that legislation and policy proposals are different because of an increasing presence of women in those uh, legislative bodies? Yes, there's definitely research that shows that women tend to sponsor or co-sponsor different types of legislation. Uh, and they, they tend to engage in slightly more across the aisle type sponsorship of legislation. So working with individuals from um, the other political party but yes, uh, we see that women tend to represent other women's interests. And partially that's explained by party. Democratic women who are elected are much more likely to sponsor bills that have to do with uh, women's rights or women's issues. But in general, women, you know, they they tend to realize, you know, certain things have been a blunt a blind spot for, you know, the traditionally male legislators. And so focusing on new pieces of legislation, I believe healthcare is one of those areas, uh, you know, domestic violence, 
um, schools, childcare, all of those sorts of things fall under this idea of a women's issue that isn't um, necessarily only affecting women, but something that women tend to care about more. And so we do see some differences in the types of legislation they support. Okay. And um, as you think about the whole electoral process, to get a little bit more broadly, you get into the whole electoral process and, you know, we're supposed to be a representative democracy and people are supposed to go to the polls and select people uh, who reflect their values and their interests. But then on the back end, everybody seems dissatisfied and they decide to vote the bums out, so to speak. <laughs> How do you reconcile those things? It's like, well, you voted a man to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, well, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that discrepancy, which is terribly unfortunate that, uh, you know, our system, the way that it's set up, I think has encouraged some apathy and some frustration. One of the major reasons why we have this trend where it seems like we're voting the bums out uh, is because different people tend to vote in midterm elections than in presidential year elections in particular. So presidential year elections tend to have much higher turnout and much more diverse turnout. And so when you look at a mid-year election, a lot of times we see that those are, that electorate who votes in a midterm election are whiter, wealthier, older, all of these different things, because for whatever reason, people don't realize how important non-presidential elections are. They're extremely important and people need to get out and vote, you know, whenever that opportunity arises. But I would say in particular during these, you know, midterm uh, elections where, you know, in 2022 in the fall, people need to turn out. If they don't want to see Congress become Republican, they need to turn out because usually what happens is uh, the Republicans have an advantage during midterm elections. Now that didn't happen in 2018. Largely, I think, because progressives were um, emboldened and galvanized by the Trump administration's policies. But, uh, you know, I think that it's very important to try to stay as informed as possible and try to make a point to go out and vote. Of course, for some people, it's very difficult. Our country does not make it easy. Other countries have holidays when they vote. Uh, so you don't have to go to work. You don't have to take time off of work or figure out a time during your work day when you're going to be able to go and vote. Uh, you know, recently having the mail-in voting, I think made it a lot easier for people, but a lot of states are changing those rules and they're going to make it more difficult to get an absentee ballot or a mail-in ballot which is terribly unfortunate because if you want lots of people to turn out, you would think that you would want those options to exist. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's extremely important that people turn out because otherwise they are going to 
likely not be happy with the results. Um, so while theoretically the public voted them in, it might not have been the same public, basically, depending upon who went yes. to the party that day. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's, it's so unfortunate. And I think part of the reason is that people sometimes get disillusioned and upset when candidates make very broad claims during their campaigns. And they say, you know, we're going to do all of these things. And then two years, say, into a presidential term, they haven't accomplished all the things that they have set out to accomplish. And so people are disillusioned and they don't show up for the midterm election. And that's really, really unfortunate because that is making it impossible for that president to continue to pursue their agenda. And we saw that with the Obama administration in particular, we saw that with the Trump administration, you know, it can be a real issue for a president to be able to pursue their agenda if people don't show up during the midterm. But those candidates need to take some responsibility for making some very strong um, extreme claims about the types of policies that they're going to get passed. Because that leads to disillusion, I think, among voters. Yeah, and I think politicians think that they're caught in a conundrum. It's like, if I don't promise something, the folks won't know what I stand for and they don't feel like they'll have a reason to vote for me unless I tell them what I'm going to do. But on the other hand, I can overpromise, and then I look like I lied. So they are really kind of between a rock and a hard place in, in how, in how much they, in deciding how much they'll say and how much they'll promise when they're on the campaign trail. Definitely. Um, yeah. And I think voters kind of have to understand that. I think if maybe, I don't know if it's becoming more cynical or more savvy, but as a voter, eventually, I think I, I get to the point where I got have to kind of take all of it with a grain of salt because I'm sitting there going, well, you know, you really can't make that happen unless you get enough support from X number of other folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and I think that it is, yes, voters should you know, become more savvy and realize how much power legislative bodies have. And that means that whoever's in the executive office, whether it be, you know, governor or president or what have you, you know, in Augusta, in, as an example, you know, the mayor doesn't have much power, uh, isn't really able to do much. It's the commission that, you know, has all the power. And so people, think that, you know, why isn't the executive doing what they said they were going to do? And part of it is because of this lack of understanding of, you know, what the constraints are on their power and their influence. Okay. And is that one of the things that you wish voters knew, understood more about? Yes. I wish voters understood that. I wish that voters understood that their vote does matter. However, uh, I would say that having a stable party identification, so really thinking about investigating the two party platforms and picking the one that is closest to 
your policy positions, your values, and letting that guide you in elections. I understand that sometimes third-party candidates are refreshing and closer to us in terms of our positions, but it's very difficult for a third-party candidate to actually win. And so, you know, there are times when making that sort of protest vote or, you know, just because you love the candidate so much, voting for a third-party candidate makes sense. But I would say one of the best things that voters can do is to pick one of the political parties and do their best to support that party if, you know, that party remains closest to them in terms of their positions and their values. That makes, that makes voting so much easier because you don't necessarily need to know every little thing about every single candidate. Of course, that's for general elections, right? With primaries, uh, you have to do a little bit more investigation, but. Okay, great. Um, As we uh, have another just couple minutes left, um, I know you focus more on national political issues than you do state and local, um, but I, I can't, Uh, in the conversation without thinking a little bit on the state level here, where we have a great deal of diversity in the applicant pool, the candidate pool for the governorship. Mm -hmm. Um, How have you had had a chance to really shape your thoughts about how this could turn out? I mean, you got independent candidates, you got a libertarian candidate, you got at least four or five declared Republican candidates, one Democrat, got women, you've got African-Americans. I mean, what do you see? Have you had a chance to really think about what that's going to look like come November the 8th? So, you know, I think that Stacey Abrams is going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. And I would be surprised if Kemp is not the nominee for the Republican Party, but the fact that he's being challenged by other Republicans, as well as, you know, conservative independent, like libertarians um, who tend to be conservative, uh, is problematic for him when it comes to the November 8th election. But I do think that he's going to end up being the nominee. I would be surprised if he isn't. Uh, I think the fact that there are so many challengers within his own party or within his own ideological views is an indication more so of him being unpopular among them, but not so unpopular that he's going to lose the nomination. Uh, But, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Uh, I think... It's going to be very, very close, as it was last time Abrams ran against Kemp. I think that, unfortunately, we might see the same sorts of things play out where there's some controversy over whose vote actually was counted. And I think for that reason, people need to put down the apathy and show up to the polls because it's very, very important that people show up and that you check your registration online to make sure 
that you're still registered, that you haven't been purged from the voting rolls for not having voted in the last couple of elections, because that is something that happens. You know, to talk to your friends about getting registered and, you know, make a plan. There are times when we can vote early in Georgia, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, and so try to make a plan if, you know, that Tuesday is not going to work out for you, make a plan to do it beforehand um, and go along with a friend if you can. But unfortunately, I think we're going to see some of that same disagreement and controversy over whether or not mail-in ballots, absentee ballots are going to be allowed at the numbers that they're going to be desired at and to what extent some people's votes are going to not end up being counted or people aren't gonna be registered because of some small discrepancy in their paperwork. Okay. Thank you so much uh, for providing the information and perspective on uh, electoral politics in our country. I appreciate it so much. Again, this was Dr. Mary-Kate Lizotte from the faculty at Augusta University. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I close with my favorite Bible verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community and offering you wisdom for decision-making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. here on WKZK, 1600 AM, 103.7 FM, and WKZK.net because local matters.